tell you, it's a great night to be inside because it's raining outside, lightning and thunder. I didn't know that Dustin Huffman was that powerful. <laughs> but this is a beautiful audience. It's obvious that many of the ladies spent the afternoon with their hairdresser. <laughs> Some had their hair done, and I just... <laughs> no, but it's a great crowd. And the past year saw the breakup of some highly publicized romances. Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, Sonny and Cher, Henry Kissinger and Anwar Sadat. <laughs> but there's a few people missing. Marlon Brando won't be here this year either. The Indians are holding him for the balloon payment. These jokes. Now he gave him a little land with a mortgage on it. Some gift, that's like getting a liver transplant from Dean Martin. Obviously very dated jokes. This is 1975, the opening monologue at the uh, Oscars. Bob Hope is uh, always a topic on my mind for whatever reason. I, I, I don't know. Don't, don't ask me. Probably because he's from my hometown of Cleveland, Ohio. Not, not born there, but he's from Cleveland. Uh, but there's a really cool interview that I had, not just talking about Bob Hope, but a lot of other celebrities uh, with David Fantle and Tom Johnson here. The book that they had uh, came out a couple of years ago. It's called Hollywood Heyday, 75 Candid Interviews with Golden Age Legends. And they'll tell the story, but they were basically a bunch of late teenagers. They were teenagers, and they were living in Minnesota and went out to L.A. and interviewed a bunch of celebrities back in the 1970s. And they compiled all those uh, it, it, interviews that they had into this book, and it's a really cool book. So I highly recommend it. It's available on Amazon for you to check out because I'm fascinated with old Hollywood, as you probably heard in the Columbo episode, especially 70s Hollywood. I don't know why. That post- Golden Age, I guess, uh, the the new era of the uh, Robert Altman type of films and that type of Hollywood. I, I've always kind of liked that. I don't know why. So we get into it and talking about the Golden Age as well, the era before then from like the early 1930s all the way through the 1960s. So great interview I had. Uh, I pat myself on the back. But great to talk to David Fantle and Tom Johnson, the authors of the book Hollywood Heyday, 75 it candid interviews with Golden Age legends. Check it out. Let me know what you think. So we got a leading lady in this thing for me? Well, it's not really a leading lady, per se. It's What, do you got a troop of gals? Well, actually, there's an affair that you get involved in. Oh, and, that's good, yeah. And then yeah. from there, like, there's sort of a... Can we get Joey Heatherton for that? Well, actually, for that, I, w I was looking at the, a terrific actress. Uh, I don't know if you know her, Diane Keaton. She's really, really, really great. That string bean that was in your movie? What do you mean? She's terrific. She's versatile. She's she's attractive. She's great. Jeez, I don't know. I don't know. I need a girl to build. If I'm going to fall in love with her, it's got to be realistic for me. Realistic? I mean, it's exactly what I'm going for, you know? I mean, I don't want to mug or go too broad with this thing. Yeah, well, what's wrong with Anita Ekberg? At least she's, you know. What, what, what? What's with the hands? You want an actress with arthritis? <laughs> yeah. Okay, look, what are you going to... You hang loose, okay? I'm going to be right back. Look, your mood ring's turning black. Take it easy, boy. Take it easy. Mood ring? What is this, 1968? The young kids would say, though, if it's in black and white, I don't want to watch it. True. Unless True. it's unless it's Clerks, I guess. They was could watch Clerks or maybe Ed Wood. Oh, Ed Wood, great movie. Or, you know, Three Stooges, you know, beating each other. <laughs> are, we, are we allowed to watch Three Stooges anymore, or is that... Uh... Well, 
Never. I don't know. You know, Gone with the Gone with the Wind is in jeopardy, so who knows? But I'll Gone with the Wind is colorized, though, and some. <laughs> so yeah, that's one well, thing. Yeah. All right. Yeah, funny thing. Yeah, about about uh, Three Stooges. Dave, uh, what's his name? We interviewed uh, Jules White. Yeah. yeah, Jules White. We asked him to do an eye poke, and this was years ago. And he said, "No, I don't want to send the bad a bad message to the kids. They can put their <laughs> eye out." He said, you, you spent a career getting guys to do this. What the heck? You oh, know, I I did it growing up all the time. And we we, yeah. we we all did yeah, the thing where we put it in front yeah. of the face. Exactly, but he wouldn't even like humor us by doing it. It was kind no. of funny. But we didn't have those sound effects, the little violin pluck, you know. For yeah, the, or the bass, bass drum or any of that stuff. That's uh, – well, I may as well get started because, I mean, I'm recording this. So what I'm Basically what I'm doing is – so I work at a radio station here in Akron, and I'm also doing a podcast. So I'm going to do the full podcast, and I'm going to play like a 20-minute portion of it on our radio show. Wonderful. And so yeah. – so we'll start it off by talking about, uh, first of all, uh, you know, it's been about a couple of years, but Hollywood Heyday came out, and it really was a, there it is, it really was a 40-year labor of love for you guys, hasn't it? Yeah, it was. We started in uh, when we were 18 years old, the summer of our uh, uh, graduating from high school, when we got uh, invites from uh, Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly to meet them out in L.A., so... We jumped on a plane right after, almost right after graduation, and and met those two guys. We had uh, corresponded with their secretaries for years. Because Tony, I, I, talk about how times have changed. You know, the thought of Tom and I at age eighteen going up in the Twin Cities. By then, we were passionate about classic films, having been exposed to them for a few years prior. Just the thought of sending U.S. mail letters to the homes of Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire, <laughs> and to get responses. Um, and we did. We have dozens of these experiences um, through the years of that happening with these old school stars. I mean, could you imagine? Oh, I, I want to maybe sit down with Leo DiCaprio. Do you think I can write him a letter at his home? And do you think he'll respond? I mean, it's just yeah, changed no. dramatically. I mean, and we've done a lot of uh, you know over the years interviews with younger stars, and you know it's maybe you know, two, three, four weeks, two months back and forth with uh, gatekeeper publicists just to get, you know, 20 minutes on the phone with them. It's just incredible. The, the stuff that was in Hollywood heyday, which is available on amazon.com, um, is absolutely, uh, you know, you couldn't replicate it now. There, The access just isn't there with younger stars or even probably older ones now. But so. also at the same time, the access is also probably as best as it could with the possibility that somebody, that if you tweet at them or post something on their Instagram, that there is a chance that they can see it as opposed to back in the day. And this example has been brought up before, but if you re really, really didn't like the Cary Grant movie and you see, well, like, what are you going to do? I thought your movie stunk and you start writing it and then you have to find the P.O. box and you have to hopefully find the secretary and you have to know all this other stuff. And nowadays yeah. you could just go on Twitter and you say, hey, uh, you know, Chris Pine, I think you're a bum and I think your movies suck and whatever. It, it's like at that time there was a nice feeling because I have heard stories of people that have reached out to celebrities. We were just talking about the Three Stooges and Tom Bergeron was one of them where yeah. he just cold called. He was bored one night. He's yeah. in his teens. He cold calls the Three Stooges. I think he called Larry first 
And then, yeah. uh, and then Larry gave him Moe's number. And in those days, it was kind of one of those cases where you could actually, if you really, really looked hard enough, and there was another example of, I believe, Stan Laurel. Yeah, he lived out in Santa Monica. And he, he was in the phone, phone book, book, I think. Yeah. yeah. He was in the phone book. Yeah. That's how Dick Van Dyke found him. Yeah. yeah. And that's he how it, didn't he teach time. him the pratfalls that uh, Stan Laurel was teaching him? Look, if you're going to do these pratfalls, you have to do them a certain way or else you're going to live the rest of your life on painkillers. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, like Gary Lewis did. Yes. Yeah. That's and, and everything. Yeah. Right. But, but yeah, it, you know, the, it's an, it was a different era. Um, stars groomed in the studio system were groomed to say that your fans are just as important as making the film product. Whereas today's stars, I mean, most of them don't do their own tweets. Most of them, not all. Um, if they're smart, they don't look at the threads because you know how nasty that stuff gets nowadays. They don't even look at their stuff. Um, but as Tom mentioned, the ultimate gatekeepers um, of these people are the publicists. And they just, they, there were publicists back then, of course, but, um, they were just, it was a different era. And uh... and a lot of these, uh, as Dave said, a lot of these older stars, uh, they came up through the studio system. So they saw publicity as part of their jobs. They were sort of weaned on that in the studio system. They didn't see sitting down with reporters or interviewers as some odious thing. At least they never came out and said it. And they, they went along with it. Whereas with younger stars, you know, a lot of times they don't even want to promote the movies. They just sort of, I'm done with it. I got paid. It's out there or whatever, you know, but like people like Gregory Peck, they'd have us over for tea. I mean, he spent, you know, we spent an afternoon with them. So Lucio Ball for coffee, two times to Gene Kelly's home, yeah. uh, you know, on and on and on. Um, yeah. You know, th this wouldn't happen um, if they had a gun to their head, so to speak, and they were forced to do publicity. They did this out of their kindness of their own hearts because they really had respect for their fans and their admirers. And you had yeah. to see in those days you had to sell your movie or your whatever you were promoting. So for example, uh, I, I, we were mentioning Jerry Lewis. Jerry Lewis would be one of those guys that would be prickly with fans and everything and prickly with uh, people around him, but was one of those where if he's going to show the nutty professor or the bell, or, you know, whatever movie that he had going out there, he would go to St. Louis and he would go to Tallahassee and he would go to uh, Bakersfield and he would show it in the movie house and he would be there to answer Q&A. He may not have, some of these guys didn't want to do it, but they had to sell it to you and they had to say, look, are you going to, and in those days, it almost seems like counterproductive that nowadays that the the movies that are on Netflix and Hulu that don't get the wide release that movies back then did, you would think they would want to do that more. But I, I don't know. I guess everything everything in, is backwards nowadays. Yeah. Well, yeah, you even think that some stars today to help promote. I mean, the promotion business has changed. I mean, look at The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. He had guests of all varieties who were there for conversation and talk. Now, if you look at late night television, there's rarely a guest that isn't there to promote the latest film or television. So they have a big weekend at the box office. It's a That's PR stop. It. Yeah, it's a PR stop. Yeah. yeah, exactly right. Yeah, I mean, Carson had his regulars that were, you know, like Burt Mustin, the old man who was, <laughs> looked old even when he was probably 20. He'd just come on and tell weird fishing jokes because he was funny. And Carson had a good rapport with them, you know, and he, you know, Mustin hadn't worked in 10 years. It wasn't like, you know, he had anything to plug, but which it was just an entertainment show. Which you know? Tony brings you to, um, 
I guess you can call Bob Hope Cleveland's native son. He was mm-hmm. born in England, but he's a perfect example of someone who brilliantly understood the power of PR. Now, Tom and I were fortunate to have one phone interview and one lengthy sit-down interview exclusive with Bob Hope during our college age days. But Bob Hope, of course, who was king of the specials, and as the years went on, the quality of the specials got worse and worse, no (laughs) denying that, a lot of cute. But the reality is Bob Hope would sit in his home in Toluca Lake near NBC Studios and be on the phone with 200 um, TV critics individually for a couple days promoting each of these specials. He worked tirelessly and was extremely accessible. I will say this, Bob Hope didn't divulge much about himself in these short interviews to promote his shows. He never really Um, did. There there was that one interview with Dick Cavett that I thought he talked a little bit about his finances and everything, but he didn't, he didn't talk much about the the relationship with Dolores and the kids. It was always about, it was business with, with Bob Hope. But like you said, he did so in a way where he was really, he, he was a salesman is what he was. Yeah. He was a brilliant businessman and a salesman. And Tom and I were fortunate because if you read the interviews in Hollywood heyday, he scoffs at the term being called a legend, and he was quite frank about that. He was very frank about what he considered the um, decline of movie comedies, and he cited an example of a film called North Dallas 40 with his friend uh, Mac Davis specifically. And here's Bob Hope, this well-known conservative who um, who was appalled at what happened with the Ronald Reagan assassination attempt and went against the conservative mantra and came out in support of greater gun control. And he told us these things in that interview that are published in Heyday, that it's a side of hope you typically don't see in those standard talk show interviews. Yeah. 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 And when you're, when you're looking in those days, because Bob Hope, and I, I was actually just talking to my mom today, and I was, I was telling them that I was... Uh, uh, talking to you guys here in a, just a little bit, and we got on the subject of Bob Hope, and Bob Hope and John Wayne and some of these other acts that were popular before, like, uh, my parents are in their 60s, and so Bob Hope, by the time they were starting to get memory in the early 1960s, mid-60s, Bob Hope was irrelevant by then, to them. Yeah, but to I mean, their he, parents, just like Bing Crosby, just like some of those other acts, even even the ones that had long passed away, like a W.C. Fields, I think the only act that – it almost seemed like the only actor at that time that really kind of crossed over and really appealed to the younger generation from the old one was probably Groucho. True. Yeah. I, I yeah. Would say that, that's a good point. And, you know, I would say – and, you know, we're huge fans of Hope. I think you are too, but I think – It's fair to say by about 1960, the quality of his work, films, television and everything was pretty unremarkable and pretty forgetful, uh, forgettable. But um, I think you're also right. I have um, college students at Marquette University, a film class. And about two years ago with 50 students, I mentioned Bob Hope in some passing reference and I got blank stares and I asked, can I see a show of hands of who here knows who Bob Hope was? And this was a couple of years ago. I didn't get one hand. Mm. And, you know, here's a guy who lived to be 100. 2003, he passed away. We talk about Richard Zoglin's book, um, Bob Hope, Entertainer of the Century, um, which came out not that long ago. There you have a copy of it. And here you go, Entertainer of the Century and students in 2016, 17, 
don't even know who that person was. But that's pop culture, you know, pop. I mean, no one knows who, you know, uh, silent film comedians, especially silent film dramatic actors, they're all forgotten. And I mean, you know, to my grandmother's era, I mean, you know, people like Al Jolson, he was the entertainer of the century in the early 1920s. People couldn't imagine anyone a live performance being better than Al Jolson. You see him now and it's sort of like a joke. Yeah, or Rudy's Valley. Yeah, well, that's just what happens with pop culture. And I think part of the reason that Hope held on as long as he did was all those uh, USO shows that he did. I mean, there's just generations of, uh, you know, of um, servicemen and women that that cherished him. In fact, the, our uh, Hope interview in the in, in the book, Hollywood Heyday, ends with a letter we got from a, a Vietnam veteran that sent this poem that we published actually, about, yeah. about Bob Hope. And talk about our, you know, our affection for hope. I mean, Tom and I wrote, it's sort of macabre, but we wrote this obituary magazine when he was 95, I believe. And of course he hung on another five years and it was published all over the country in newsstands um, on his hundredth. But as Tom mentioned, on his 90th birthday, it was the early part of the internet. And we had had one of our interviews somewhere living on the internet and a veteran who saw hope perform wrote this very heartfelt poem to Bob Hope, which again is, as Tom mentioned, in Hollywood heyday. And he asked us, could we please forward it on to Bob Hope's people and share it with them, which we did send to his publicity person. But, you know, by this point, you know, Bob Hope was quite old. I'm not sure if he ever saw it. But if you read that poem, you'll understand how he emotionally touched, connected, and made a difference to these men and women who were serving all over the world. Yeah, just huge. So, yeah. and that lingered for a lot of people, but, but for their kids, as you said, Tony, they, they didn't know him from Adam. They didn't care. Yeah. It was funny. when I was growing up, uh, it was in the nineties and we had to do, and from being from Ohio, we did famous Ohioans. So everybody did Neil Armstrong and they did, and I did Bob Hope and I had old, uh, like AMC magazine and, uh, probably people magazine and everything. And you start going, going on and you're like, and I've been obsessed with Bob Hope, even to the point where I, I also read the Arthur Marks book, which is yeah. some, some say was uh, fairly uh, character assassination. There's a lot of it's like, hey, Bob Hope did this and he entertained the troops. But let me tell you what he was doing with Marilyn Maxwell here. <laughs> well, and, you know, was Bob Hope a schnook? I mean, we yeah, of course he was who a lot of them were. Um, back now and back then. I mean, so that's no great secret. But, you know, the, when you go on some of these social media sites dedicated to, you know, Golden Age film stars and stuff, and you put a Bob Hope or see a post, you see a lot of negativity for Bob Hope. And unfortunately, I think you're seeing it because, again, maybe his conservative politics. He became a war hawk back in the 60s in Vietnam. But Tom and I go to his defense for so many reasons because... As does Woody Allen. Yes. Yeah. I mean, if you, I mean, let's just take one basic point about his contribution. Outside of arguably Will Rogers, Bob Hope is the father of the modern day topical monologue. The guy who reads the newspaper, what's happening in the country and in the world, comes in front of the curtain and for five minutes tells jokes about what is happening today. It's a model that he was one of the pioneers of that is still being done on late night television and by comedians today. Does Bob Hope get that kind of credit? Probably no, no, not, no, no. but he deserves it. He does. 
Yeah, he was he was the guy that, and also we're we're taping this the night after the MTV Video Music Awards, and I I don't even remember who's hosting, but everybody's doing Bob Hope, and they don't even realize it. Hey, welcome yeah. to the show, and here's a quick joke, and uh, we're gonna here's everybody else, and maybe I'll throw in a sketch and everything. People don't realize that that was Bob Hope, yeah, what 70, 80 years ago. And that format has lived on through Johnny Carson, through any inter- iteration of The Tonight Show and Steve Allen and Jack Parr. And people just don't even realize it's just this is how we're doing it. And I guess people look at it and say, oh, everyone's doing a Johnny Carson impression. Well, sure, because he popularized it and did so yeah. at a time. But in reality, I mean, you go back to Frank Fay, Bob Hope, and some of the other uh, 1930s comedians that were on the radio and they pioneered that and they unfortunately like you said tom that nobody gets the credit for those in those later generations and and a great thing about hope too i mean which we would should never forget is i mean these film roles and not just the road pictures but his persona in films was really unique i mean the kind of the weasel the sniveling little like frady cat that won't you know uh take a risk that was like a great, great persona. He played that so well. In, I always, in yeah, dozens the woman, of films. He was like the womanizing coward. And yeah. I mean, you take, uh, there's a black and white film that's a great example of that from, I believe, 46 called um, Mansour Bolcair. Yeah. Uh, outstanding. That's his, his cowardly womanizing image in full flower. Um, there's a, a color film, Technicolor film called The Princess and the Pirate, a Santa Golden production with Bob Hope, and he's the sniveling coward in that. Those are just a couple- yeah, Casanova's of Big Night, great yeah. in that. And these were films that he did without Bing Crosby, Yeah, which, yeah. I mean, they're the more famous movies, the road pictures, and they were, you know, their repartee dates a little bit. I still like it, but it dates, but when you see Hope Solo just flying without a net and being a weasel, it's just really funny. I mean, it's just great, great stuff that to me is still, you know, holds up really well. Yeah, I got a chance to go out to um, uh, Toluca Lake, and I was I was actually there the day that everything got shut down with Tom Hanks and everything. I was out in uh, uh, Burbank, and I was just kind of driving around and went over by the uh, the Bob's Big Boy there to, that I guess Hope used to drive into used the back. Go there all the time. Two a.m. You know, all... there at about two a.m. His he and his chauffeur would go in there because he couldn't sleep because he was you know a thousand years old, <laughs> so he sleep about forty minutes a night. They'd end up at one of the tables, and he'd be he'd be uh, eating, drinking a milkshake, and his chauffeur would be there, and people could go up to him, and uh, you know, say, "Hey, Bob, how are you doing?" And he'd respond. It was you know, but at the weirdest times, he'd be in that Bob's big boy. The fi- the yeah. fi- the final thing I want to ask about Bob Hope is how great is that Dave Thomas impression on Second City oh, TV? <laughs> the best, brilliant, brilliant. There, there, brilliant. There's, that, there's that play it again Bob sketch he does with Woody Allen. Uh, you know, with Rick Moranis, yeah. Who was also fantastic. I mean, they're together. They're just. And, you know, that whole shtick with Bob, you know, good night. Let me tell you how you doing. You know, all these all these mannerisms that he had. And he used his hands just like Jack Benny did, like Johnny Carson did as a comedian. He had again, people tend to criticize him. They look at his last 20 some years, 30 years. He stayed too long. He didn't know when to go and take a final bow. Um, But. 
the guy introduced um, what two Oscar-winning songs. Thanks for the memory, buttons memory. and bows. He introduced "It's the Lovely" on Broadway. He introduced "Silver Bank Get Started," which is a great. The Bunny Berrigan made famous, but with yeah. great song, right? Seven Little Foys again. That dance routine he does with Cagney mm-hmm. is uh, is is wonderful. Um, and how so ma- how many leading actresses that he he ended up bringing about like Doris Day, Lucille Ball, I mean obviously Dorothy Lamore, but how many of them that had worked with him became absolute superstars? Yeah. Eve Arden on Broadway mm-hmm. in, uh, in the Ziegfeld Follies of '38. Eve Arden was with him, and no, I mean he, he had from yeah, and all the USO shows, all these people, like Connie Francis's and everyone that he'd have on his, his co-stars. Show. His co-stars loved him, and in the yeah. book. Um, and I don't remember the exact quotes, but we talked uh, with Eva Marie Saint, who was in one of those <laughs> forgettable later films. But she she loved Bob. She loved working him. I think what happened is um, Bob loved to burn the candle at eight ends. He was a workaholic, but he was also a golf fanatic. So I think as the years went on, he spent less and less time on his TV shows and his movies because he wanted to hit the golf course, sort of like Chico Marx wanted to hit the casino or something, you know, he just... <laughs> Or hit whatever woman he's trying to hit. Yeah. You know. Have you seen, I think they put on YouTube, Joys, the Bob Hope special? Because remember, he was doing all those where there would be something really popular, and then a few months later, they would try to do a parody of it. And this is when Jaws right. was popular in 75. So in, in his 76 special, which he's doing all... You know, 76 presidential elections. Like, it's like uh, what he said, oh, you know, at the... In, in the in the fall, there's a really scary holiday that's coming up. Yes, election day, ladies and gentlemen. And he starts doing all that, but it is, it's terrible. But she, I recommend everybody listening to watch Joys on YouTube because it's every comedian, past and present, and not just comedian. I mean, like he's got like Don Adams on there. He has. Uh, Foster Brooks is a, like a homeless guy who falls asleep in his car. And it's just so many other great ones, including some who are actually in Hollywood heyday, including there, because uh, uh, you guys got, got an opportunity that segues into my next one, talking to guys like the old comedians like George Burns. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Burns is great. Yeah. Wonderful guy. We uh, talked to him about three different times. And, uh, just a real sweetheart. I, we won't go into the preamble about how we met the, uh, him. That's a really good story in heyday. But it was a funny. This is how quick he was. He was big into vaudeville and, and he's very, very fast with a retort. And there had been a uh, aftershock in uh, an earthquake aftershock the night before we met him. We came in and he said, you know, we said, George, did you feel that aftershock? And he said, I look forward to those things. And we said, why? And he said, they're my form of aerobics. So, I mean, he was just... I mean, well into his 90s. I mean, yeah. Tom and I first saw him in 78. And then he was what? So he was born in 1890. So he's like 81 at that time. And this was this was after what? Oh, God, right? Oh, God and um, Sunshine, Sunshine Boys. Boys. But, but yeah. Tony, you bring up a perfect example, because when we talk about golden age comedians, and there's several in the book, the only, I mean, George Burns, more so than Bob Hope, is falling into collective what do we say? Not memory. Obscurity. And, and because, you know, he was a radio performer. Yeah, the Burns and Allen show was successful on TV, but it's hard to see. It's in black and white. And other than um, Oh God and um, Sunshine Boys, he doesn't leave a film legacy. And if you don't leave a great, strong film legacy, you're going to get forgotten quicker. Perfect example is someone who was a huge superstar that is totally forgotten by any younger generation. That's Milton Berle. Yes. 
I mean, yeah, what a, TV pioneer sold a zillion TVs. Everyone had to, was, the world stopped on Tuesday nights for his Texaco Star Theater, but their kinescopes, the quality is horrible. He doesn't have a film legacy, forgotten. So yeah. what? So how can we preserve this? I mean, other than, of course, writing books like this, but how can we preserve this and let younger people know? Because I, I see this from pop culture, flash in the pan, 15 minutes of fame, people from when I grew up, and I'm 32, so I've, I saw this through the 90s, and then those people like, like I was I was watching a movie I think it was called Can't Hardly Wait the other day and you start looking you're like oh yeah that person whatever happened to them and then you look at their IMDb and they're just doing like small parts in Hallmark movies so you yeah. say how do we preserve this for going forward and how do we tell people because not everybody's going to be a film buff like us that nobody's going to be where I'm watching a movie and I have to be on IMDb at the same time to see oh that's the guy who was in. He was in the background in Goodfellas when they were in the restaurant, and right. and he's co-starred in this. And I, I know my wife is sitting there going, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't care. I don't care. But how do we preserve this? Sounds like my wife. <laughs> well, I don't know, Tony. I, I mean, I think it's great to try and preserve. I, I know TCM exists for this very reason, to you know educate people and to have a forum for old movies. But... You know, the way pop culture is, I, I, you know, I just don't know if you can preserve it and present it in a way that, you know, the large majority of younger people will ever be interested in it because, you know, they're into what they're into and it has nothing to do with Fred Astaire doing a tap dance, you yeah. know, and I mean, you'll always get hardcore fans and people that, you know, and, and curious people that want to maybe seek out some of these films, they see a clip on YouTube and, uh, you know, so we'll always be that. But I, you know, as far as a mass movement to nostalgia, I, boy, I don't know. You know. When we got started, Tony, and Tom and I are both 60, 1974, uh, of course, it was before the technology, but That's Entertainment came out, the compilation of all those great MGM musical clips. That spawned a whole nostalgia craze, sort of, we sort of harken back to those good old simpler times. But you got to understand that was 1974. You know, Casablanca was only, what, 40 to 50, 30 years earlier. Now Casablanca is, you know, like 80 years ago. So right. in collective right. memory, it's just going. And while we don't want to sound pessimistic, no. and thank God, Tony, you're into this, and we hope yeah. more of you in their 30s, 40s, and even 50s are, but a TCM thinks or tries, oh, I'm going to put Tina Fey on to introduce a film, and that will translate into young people actually watching the film. Guess what? I don't think it works. I mean, the TCM, while it has a solid core fan base, like all of us here, it's not a big fan base. I mean, the viewership, while they don't disclose numbers from what I heard, is, is very niche. And um, so... They do a lot of efforts to expose, keep younger people to those films. I'm not sure how successful it is. Well, also, they, I mean, the way technology is today, there are just so many venues, so many options, so many choices for young people. We had The Late Show, you know, and we had four channels of television. So if Casablanca was being, and there were rep houses, there were movie theaters that showed old movies, all of that's gone. You know, so and, and young people, they have like YouTube, they have like different, they have Hulu, they have, you know, different Netflix. specific niche channels where they can go exactly to what they want to see. So it's really hard to kind of, you know, capture 
those people for, you know, say old movie night. I mean, it's an example of like my students, you know, they're used to CGI, they're used to effects. So when you see the phony rear projection, you see those great old films shot on the back lots, which are, are charming and wonderful. They think it's creaky and corny. I'm not all, but a lot of them. Then you take a, you show a film like um, All About Eve or even North by Northwest. The general reaction is, gosh, those are sort of dialogue heavy and long. You know, <laughs> not that there aren't long pictures today. There certainly are. Um, but that's the kind of thing. And you mentioned the Marx Brothers. Um, here we are. And I, I mean, I, Tom and I are transformational. Duck Soup, Horse Feathers, those early brothers films revolutionary when we saw him 40, 45 years ago. I'll show a Marx Brother film to a, a college students now, a duck soup. And um, let me, I'm just pushing my OK button. And you know what invariably happens, Tony? They think Groucho is an insult comedian who we can't understand him. He talks too fast like a Gatling gun. He's got the strong Eastern accent and he's a total sexist. He's insulting these poor, these poor women like Margaret Dumont. Um, you know, they, they, think, they think Groucho is mean, you know? So they don't see it in the context of what we were raised to see it in. Yeah, and Groucho, especially in those days, because you mentioned about the nostalgia craze when they brought back animal crackers. Where sure. uh, and I've talked to Steve Stolier, who sure. yeah, I know him. Yeah, he was at UCLA. Him. Yep, yeah. brought it back and brought yeah. it back. And people were lined up around the block at UCLA, one of yeah. the small right. theaters, to see that. Past, uh, uh, I think the French Connection of all movies yeah. is an independent yeah. uh, uh, film that got out there, and people were really interested in that nostalgia. And that's probably where. In the 70s, you started getting the reboots of the old shows like Gleason would be on TV and he would uh, he'd be all tan. and He'd just do his show from Miami the whole time. And so you, you had a lot of that. Nowadays, we do have nostalgia. It's just it's such a homogenized and watered down market now that a reboot like, because I, I think if you told me 20 years ago that they would reboot something like the Flintstones or something, you say, oh, gosh, you can't do that. It's going to ruin the Flintstones. I don't think they have any. These reboots have no impact on the original nowadays. So I don't know if that's a good or bad thing, but I don't know if that's also getting people into going back in time. So if they were to redo, like they redid Caddyshack a few years ago, or how many incarnations of The Odd Couple, how many of those young people that are watching Matthew Perry on The Odd Couple and saying, gosh, wait, wait, this went back all the way. Who's Neil Simon? Who is uh, Jack Klugman? And they start going back. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of it is just risk averse executives. It's, you know, bean counters that say, well, we had this property made a lot of money at this point in time. Let's redo it because it'll make a lot, a lot of money again, as opposed to an original script or teleplay or something that was is riskier because there's no, you know, there's no backstory to how, how well it did financially. You're taking a, you're taking a, a leap of faith and a lot of people in this town, they just don't want to do that. You know, Remember the they they remade the this McQueen Ali McGraw the Getaway I think with Alec Baldwin right? oh and, with yeah. Kim Bass, Basinger yeah, yeah I remember yeah. that just a poor you know just a, it's it's they think it's easy money but the films invariably bomb didn't they do a Ben Hur a couple years ago well, I mean, my, my, yeah they did which I saw which was horrendous but my my um my whole sort of outlook on doing remakes is you should only remake something if it didn't succeed or was a failure or is there a way to remake it and make it better. If you're remaking a classic, I mean, what's the point? 
you know, what's the point? It was done well, like remake Wizard of Oz. It was done. It was done well once. It doesn't need to be redone. Make something or musicalize a drama or a comedy because it's a different entity then. And you can musicalize it and, and make it a different kind of a thing. But don't remake classics. I mean, what, course, what's the point of it? The exceptions of, you know, remakes are the, inc- the reiterations of like A Star is Born. I was just going to say you that, know? yeah. Yeah, I mean, what has there been now? Four or five versions. You could of that? you could take a concept and update it to today and everything with cell phones and uh, how yeah. everything is going from back in you know the Chris Christopherson days. But uh, yeah, yeah it, it's it's interesting because with film with all these movie theaters, the classics like the Ziegfeld and New York closing and. that we don't have that appreciation that I have this iPhone that I can watch an entire movie on. I mean, I'm talking to you, I'm talking to you guys right now and it it was an unheard of concept at one time. So it's, it's trying to adapt with the times. It's just, it's, it's interesting because with the amount of uh, options to watch, whether it's YouTube, whether it's Hulu and Netflix and Amazon, that there it really is kind of, if you think about it with television, it, it, it's it's a new golden age in a way where there's great television. Yeah. It's just there's so much of it out there that it's not going to be critically acclaimed or it might be critically acclaimed, but it's not going to be viewed to the point where something like Laugh-In in 1969 was on half of television. And if you weren't watching Laugh-In, you weren't watching anything. Yeah, well, you're probably, you know, gardening yeah. or something. Yeah, you know, a Beverly Hills Billy episode in the '60s would draw 40, 50 million viewers, which is unheard of for any primetime uh, show today from an audience draw. But you're right. When we, Tom and I, interviewed Lucy in 1980, she said at the time she was very bitter by that point because that last TV sitcom attempt just failed miserably but well not said, not the not not the last one wasn't it like life with lucy where she yeah, had yeah, painted that was on orange hair <laughs> yeah and they still had poor gail gordon struggling <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know, yeah she said at that time to us tv the state of tv was downhill and leaving us and i say today in 2020 if she was alive and you look at ozark or breaking bad or even game of thrones or some of these things that are on these streaming services I mean, those are feature film quality TV programming. With gigantic so, arcs, character arcs that go yeah. for a whole season, even Game of Thrones, play, things like that, that that they couldn't have done back, you know, in 1980. Would not so I agree with you, fun. Tony. I think you could say, I mean, there is a lot of direct out there because there's so much programming. But if you go through the, the direct, there's a lot of gold in there as well. Yeah, so there is. There is. There's yeah. a, it really is. And the the one, I guess the one negative with these Netflix shows. So, for example, let's say House of Cards when before the old Kevin Spacey thing, it, uh, it it was 12 episodes in the season. And the first two episodes just bam, just hit you. But they know you're going to just binge watch the entire season the first weekend it comes out. So episodes six and seven are sort of crucial to the plot, but it just plods along. And then it starts picking up. It starts the crescendo again. And, you know, to say, for example, Happy Days, that if you were going to do more than one episode of a concept, you really had to nab them in that final minute for you to go, okay, I can't wait until it returns on the next Happy Days next week. Yeah, and just to think that so many shows back then had um, 24, 26, 32 episodes a season. And there's a lot of shows from the 50s and 60s that have 200 plus episodes out there. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And they arguably jumped the shark a long time ago. Well, yeah. w- when you talk about jumping the shark, obviously the Happy Days uh, the reference there, but it, when, like, for example, the British office, isn't it like 15 episodes? But the yeah. American office is like 15 seasons. So it's like American television keeps keeps these concepts way too long. Like when Archer, the cartoon Archer, I loved it when it first came out in the yeah, first couple that, of seasons. Early Archers were great. Yeah. And yesterday I'm watching TNT or FX or whatever channel it was, and they said an all-new season of Archer. I'm like, they're still doing this? It's been a, a decade. of How yeah. much longer are you going to keep this concept dragging out? Well, like, I totally agree. And um, the Michael Scott character was brilliant. Uh, I just... He, he, he was cringeworthy, but as the years went on and times changed, he got sanitized, and then he and then he that character left the show, and it certainly went downhill. I mean, Mash is another, oh. in my opinion, another example. Um, it was wickedly biting and funny. With you had Frank Burns and you had Wayne Rogers and Alda and Hotline Stevenson. Yeah, that those first three four seasons, and then it went on what ten seasons. Longer than the, uh, you know, the Korean War. Plus, they changed. They, you know, it, it, it had sort of a Marx Brother quality of one-liners and puns early on. And Frank Burns was the locust where, you know, he was sort of the evil guy that they they made fun of. But, but then they all became role models in the last few years where, you know, they were all like, you know, preaching this and preaching that. And, you know, they leached all the funniness out of it. It was all like, you know, I mean, they were all saints and it was and then it just became uninteresting. What, what's a show you would say that ended at the right time where it didn't drag on too long? Like you said, with Tyler Moore. I was going to say the exact same thing. Yeah. Just a brilliant show in every respect. Casting. Ending. And, you know, we 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 had a couple interviews with Ed Asner, sweetheart of a guy. I interviewed him, too. He was great. Yeah. yeah. And. Uh, and and Ted Knights in Hollywood heyday who left us way too soon, but he was so magnanimous and generous for us as college students when we visited him on the set of Too Close for Comfort, had lunch with them. Just there's a great story about him in Hollywood heyday yeah. about his generosity. But um, these were amazing. These are iconic TV characters. You know that it's like the it's like the Tin Man or the Scarecrow in the Oz, a Lou Grant or a Ted Baxter. These are iconic. Yeah. during um, TV characters. They all yeah, essentially they, got, they, like, got like spinoffs, except for yeah. Ted Baxter. But Ted, you, you can you can say that Anchorman is a Ted Baxter spinoff. Oh, totally. Yeah, oh, totally. And, you know, Lou Grant was a follow-up for Ed Asner, where he came out to L.A. and became, you know, mm-hmm. the managing editor of uh, a newspaper out here in the Lou Grant series. But, but Mary Tyler Moore was just great. It was funny all the way up until the end. I mean, even the last episodes... It's, I think, the finale uh, is ranked as among one of the top five finales of sitcoms in the history of sitcoms. I mean, I mean it, they just did it right all the way through. I mean, Seinfeld was a great show. Of course, they got blasted for that last episode, so we're not going to give that comparable marks for that final episode. Um, but, yeah, there was... Uh, well, my, my prop, my, I don't have a problem with Seinfeld. Great show. But what it, differ, it, it differs for me from Mary Tyler Moore is that the cast of Mary Tyler Moore, even Ted, who was an egomaniac, they were all lovable. You loved them. You loved them. You kind of identified with them all the way through. With Seinfeld, I mean, they're they're kind of odious. I mean, all of them, they're kind of jerks. They're terrible I mean, they're people. Funny. And that's yeah, not, they are terrible people. And that so was that, what, 
That was what was interesting about why it stayed on the air was I guess Rob Reiner was the uh, real cheerleader for them. And uh, to keep it on the air and to convince Brandon Tartikoff and Warren Littlefield to keep it on the air. And the thing is with with Seinfeld is that they were they were really afraid that it was too Jewish, it was too New York centric right. until they realized it was really polling well and doing well in Iowa yeah. and oh, everywhere else. Great, yeah, great, move, great, great, great. Sentence. And it was yeah. a show. It's, it's, it, what I liked about Newhart's Seinfeld. Oh well, yeah, exactly. I was just gonna say about the Bob Newhart show. And his second great night because it followed MTM. It was just fantastic. I mean, his first one was outstanding. His second one I didn't like as much, but the finale of that second one with Suzanne Plachette in the bed and it was all a big dream was brilliant. Yeah, genius, genius. It was was so great because you want to talk about George Burns that episode with Newhart that they didn't tell anybody. The only thing they put out there, you probably know this, but for anyone else listening, they put out a, a a fake thing that says that. Um, you know, Dick's going to die and he's going to meet God who might be George Burns or Don Rickles. And yeah, so everyone's like, yeah. all right, we're getting ready for the final episode of New Heart. And I always think about this because I, I got a chance to go out to lunch with William Sanderson, who played Larry of Larry, Daryl, Daryl. Yes, sure. And yeah. he uh, so I was asking him, I said, you had you had no idea what was happening at that last scene. They said, no, you know, we knew that there was going to be a scene that uh, these were our lines. And they told us basically at the last moment, they basically. Oh, by the way, we added one extra page and then, yeah, put Suzanne Plachette in the bed and then they're back in the old, <laughs> the, in the old Bob set. Hartley. Oh, yeah. was that fantastic? That was great. great. And, and that, that was a show that didn't, it didn't hit, it was like, it was goofy. It was very goofy. Yeah. And the way I kind of look at it is it's almost like how Seinfeld's second half of their arc was goofy. That the Kramerica Industries, you had uh, the Merv Griffin set, you had the Soup Nazi. Yeah. People re- yeah. people remember those, some of the most iconic episodes, but those are yeah. from the last two or three seasons of it. And yeah. so the show got, I don't want to say it got stronger, but it changed course while keeping true to itself. And I thought that's what Newhart, the second one, was was a goofy extension of the first one, or, or should I say a goofier extension. Right, right. Right. Bob just let supporting cast, you know, take all the curtain calls. Yeah. He's, he's such a generous, talk about a generous guy. And uh, yeah, Tom and I had uh, a memorable breakfast with him decades ago um, during the first show um, at the um, Bel Air um, Hotel. Hotel. Right. Yeah. Uh, what are some other, uh, getting back to the book, some of the other celebrities that Maybe you had heard that had a reputation, like Jack Carter always had this terrible reputation. You didn't want to cross <laughs> his path. Who were some of those that you were expecting? Well, this might last about two minutes and they're going to kick us out. And then all of a sudden you sit down and it's just they open up to you. They're very cordial. Who are some of those that really jumped out at you well, that, for the interviews for the book? One one that I always, uh, I think Dave, too, says this when we do different spiels to people. Well, one of the greatest interviews that we didn't know would be great and uh, the, uh, and we didn't know how this person would be was with Rod Steiger. Mm. It was the only interview in 40 years that we had to voluntarily end ourselves because it, it was dark. It, it, you know, it was we were on his, in his patio in uh, above Malibu and it got dark and you could just see him across the patio in this pulsating blue bathrobe. And we said, well, we got to get back down to the PCH and get back to the hotel. So, Mr. Steiger, we're going to have to, you know, end this. But he could have talked for hours, and he was very, very interesting. He was also the first guy that we ever interviewed that said, 
turn your tape recorder off. We'd ask them a question like, you know, what was it like working with, um, you know, Humphrey Bogart in The Harder They Fall? Turn off your recorder. And we were the first time he said it, we were like, oh. And then he, he did this Zen pose for about a minute. And then he said, turn it on. And then he just gave this brilliant diamond gleaming anecdote about what it was like working with him. And he did that for five or six people. So he was great. He was really, really, really interesting guy. And I think most of them, Tony, I mean, yeah, Jack Carter was bitter that he was forgotten. He was prickly. He wasn't mean to us. He wanted no. to talk and tell his story because he was happy that anyone was interested in his story. He wanted us to write his autobiography. <laughs> yeah, he did. And, uh, you know, Lucy not is a surprise to some, not to a lot of people who follow her, that she was all business, not funny, no ad-libbing, because, um, you know, she was just as much of a TV executive as she was a star in front of yeah. the camera. But um, generally speaking, um, the people in the book and the uh, couple hundred plus that we interviewed you know they did it under their own volition um you know they weren't they weren't uh, forced to meet with these two guys from the midwest and as a consequence um we you know we would tell you dirt um if we said so and so was an sob or what have you um but that's just not the case i mean we had correspondence with many we had more than one interview with many we stayed in touch with several we had Christmas cards from George Burns for years and Gene Kelly for years. So um, it was part of it too, Dave, if I could interject one second, it's a good point Dave's bringing up is the reason why these sort of went off really well, these interviews was because we set them up. It wasn't like, like, you know, with the new technology or Twitter or whatever, where you're gotching these people, Mm -hmm. it was, it was all set up. So they knew what was going to happen set up weeks before usually. So, you know, they were in a good mood. They were, were there to be interviewed. They knew what was going to happen. And they were very outgoing and uh, welcoming. Did, so, did something have to, did it have to do with the fact that you were young and that you weren't just some, pre, you, like you didn't have the placard in your hat that says press and you weren't a part of the red carpet ceremonies. It was like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a 72 year old actor who's largely forgotten about or still an a-list or a b-lister and these kids are interested in me yeah absolutely i'll talk to them that's exactly what happened and we wore suits with ties we were that was a sign of respect back then they you know they thought you'll come in in blue jeans and a tank top we were always dressed to the nines and a lot of them loved that they thought you know that's that's really nice that you're respecting me that way so you know, you're right, though. It was good. Youth was on our side. The yeah. fact that here we were in the late 70s, early 80s, as college students writing for the Minnesota Daily, a large daily college, introducing people like George Jessel or um, or the Eddie and Mary Foy or, you know, a number of these forgotten vaudevillians and these old stars to an audience of 18-year-olds was a kick for them. And, you know, we would sit down with some of these vaudevillians and they would regale us for hours with great stories. Yeah. Did George Jessel, was he wearing the post, the, the, the outfit that yeah, he would always? At the, <laughs> lot, at the uh, airport when we saw him, he's wearing his purple yeah. heart and his, you know, like, you know, I think that he ripped off of Omar Bradley some, <laughs> you know, that. If you look at the, in the book, we have a couple, a candid shot of him. He's basically almost undressed. He's in a bathrobe. Um, wearing a beret over his bald, you know, he didn't have his toupee on, and um, he was living in uh, um, in river and um, where was it in uh, in the valley? Yeah, I was in the valley. In, yeah. in, total, in total squalor. 
Yeah. Yeah. A Reseda. He was living Reseda. in Reseda. Oh, okay. In squalor. Yeah. And he had his whole his whole living room was a museum. He had all kinds of memorabilia pictures all over the wall. And so most of the interview was his him directing, ordering us to go to whatever picture on the wall and then telling us about it. Or, you know, you see that cane and the cane thing? That was Harry Truman gave me that. You know, I mean, it was just it was really a bizarre interview, but it was I mean, it was fun. It was George Jefferson. Yeah, we asked him like uh uh, you know, he asked us, how's George Burns, you know, doing? And, and he said, making millions, you know, <laughs> a little bit of, uh, yeah, a little bit of jealousy there, but you know. So what was, when you were heading out into, uh, let's say Los Angeles and you were going out there for these interviews, would you set up several of them and say, okay, we're going to go to, we got to go out to Palm Springs on Tuesday and then Wednesday, Beverly Hills. And then Thursday, we'll stay in Beverly Hills. Friday, we got to go somewhere to out at Burbank and meet somebody. Was that a typical trip? Oh yeah. Well, we went from anywhere from one week to three weeks. And at three weeks, we stayed at this place still there, the Beverly Laurel that had a little kitchenette because we were students. Um, so we were on the cheap. So we would, you know, uh, cook some old little, our meals. But the, you're exactly right. These were not let's knock on the doors and surprise them. These were all prearranged. And as we got closer to these trips, we did research. We typed out typewriter um, questions for all of them. We would call them with a master schedule. Everything was manual, as you can imagine. We'd call them with a master calendar, and we would pencil people in at the earliest time they were willing to commit. Now, when we would land in Los Angeles, we still had affirmatives, but they didn't commit yet on a time and date. So we would get back on a payphone and roll of dimes (laughs) and get back sometimes with them, with their secretaries, with their managers, whomever, and we would pencil in. But I will say this back then, I, you know, as horrible as traffic has been in L.A. probably before COVID back then, it wasn't quite as hard. And Tom and I were um, we were very punctual. Um, We would rent a car or we would walk and take a bus, whatever it was, depending on what year it was. And we always made a point to get there in advance, circle around, wait a block away and knock on the door or, you know, make our entrance at the anointed time. But you're right. I mean. It was a very, um, it was a logistical chore to do because we had no technology to do and, it. Yeah, and we do make we'd schedule maybe sometimes four interviews in a day, oh, and yeah. you know they might be, you know, it wouldn't be Palm Springs that day, but there might be four interviews in L.A., two of them in the Valley, three of them on Beverly Hills, maybe one in Santa Monica. So, all, like as Dave said, the logistics you had to figure all that out, driving time, you know, so that we weren't late. And, um, you know, thank God that L.A., you know, 40 years ago was a little less traffic choked. So we were able to sometimes we were making it. We, we were coming from Van Nuys over to Beverly Hills and we had 20 minutes. But, you know, yeah. you could do that back then. Was so. there a was there anyone that you got to talk to maybe uh, by proxy or that you didn't get a chance to talk to? Because I there's a. There's a story Steve Stolyer talks about that, and for people who don't know Steve, he worked with Groucho and worked with under the notorious Aaron Fleming in the final Flemo. three years Flemo. of of uh, art, yeah Flemo yeah art uh, under uh, uh, Groucho's life, and they would have all these different people, whether it be George Burns come to the house or some of the newer celebrities like an Elliot Gould would be there, and one of Groucho's longtime friends was uh, Arthur Sheikman. Yeah, the you know, writer. He writer. was a writer, and what Steve didn't realize is that he that Gloria uh, Gloria Stewart 
was Arthur Sheikman's wife. Groucho would just refer to her as, oh, oh it's, uh, it's uh, uh, Arthur's wife, Gloria, is going to be there, and didn't dawn on him or anything. And he would have said, oh, I would have loved to talk to her about working with Claude Rains and everything. Yeah, and then right. eventually later in her career had a very nice bounce back. But was there ever anybody that it was a similar situation that you, you're, you're kicking yourself because they're probably long since passed away that you're like, right there, right there could have interviewed them and just, just didn't have it? Well, we talk, Tom and I, we talk about it from time to time. Yeah, and we always just come back to the point was, man, we got some pretty good names. Why are we worried about who we didn't get? But you're right. We had an interview with the great director, William Wyler, and he literally died 48 hours before. We tried and we have letters from people like George Cukor and Wyler. We Frank tried Sinatra. Get, yeah. Sinatra. We tried to get to, of course, John Wayne. We love Johnny Carson, but of course he was pretty reclusive. We got to Fred de Cordova and got to know him well, and Ed McMahon. We never got to Johnny. So there were, you know, it, it, yeah, would Wells have been great? Or, um, you know, there there was a, sure, certainly a lot of Golden Age stars. Jimmy Stewart, we tried. Mervyn Leroy, the producer, tried very hard on our behalf. Um, we tried for Hal Wallace in Palm Springs. He was too ill by then. Um, so, um, Again, yeah, there were our batting average was never going to be a thousand, but we were pretty pleased with what it was. Yeah, we Ira Gershwin, we almost got yeah. to him, but you know, we we couldn't but, make that happen. I mean, yeah, I mean, but that's the thing. It's uh, yeah, that's a, it's a batting average. You know, you go out, you canvas, you try and get as many as you can, and then you're going to get a lot of uh, a lot of no's, but then you're going to get yeses, and over the time over a period of 20, 30, 40 years they add up into, you know, Hollywood heyday. So. Yeah. And I think the book is dedicated simply to Gene and Fred, or Fred and Gene, because those two superstars were so universally revered and they opened the doors for us. They were the first two that they actually, you know, made some calls for us. That photo with us with Fred Astaire certainly got us to James Cagney. They were so universally revered. A lot of the stars that did consent or the um, artists said probably to themselves, gosh, if Fred and Gene would see these two guys from the Midwest, we will too. And that was one of the one things that we did really, we were pretty sharp about this. I, although we probably didn't think we were. We uh, are, our, our little candid little polaroid candidates that we got with fred astaire in 1978 when we were 18 in our first suits we we made a ton of those when we got back and we put those in every query letter for whoever we were trying to interview and fred fred astaire that that picture was like the golden ticket it was like the willy wonka golden ticket all cagney for one said basically said to us as dave said when we we showed up at his house if 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 freddie's gonna see you i'm gonna see you so i mean you know, there were a lot of people that that by virtue, by dint of seeing Fred Astaire and seeing that picture with them, that got us in the door. Now, so. I, I had the similar thing with uh, a celebrity that I, I had booked. It was uh, Marty Allen of sure. Allen yeah, Rossi. Canadian. And just a, got a few years ago. Yeah. it was one of those cases where it's just uh, I got to him probably a couple of weeks too late and then he was just and I, I got a response from his publicist saying uh he's a little too sick and then I woke up one morning yeah. and he had passed away the yeah. um so uh, one of the other things so I've been working in media now about almost 14 years now and I've been in locker rooms I've been at political rallies I've covered celebrities I've done this stuff and of course the big thing that's frowned upon when you interview these people is that if you're a fan of theirs you don't act like a fanboy. So I've I've had many opportunities where I've been, stood next to LeBron James. 
And yeah. when I was 19, 20 years old, and he was around this, he's, he and I are around the same age, and looking up and going like, that's the best basketball player on the planet right now. And I have to detach from myself, from Tony the fanboy, the, the basketball fan, and go to Tony the media personality. Was there an, a, a time when interviewing these people where – Granted, there's no selfies at that time, but there was still an opportunity you could get autographs and you can get a Polaroid. Was that feeling where in the back of your mind that I would I would just love to get an autograph, like have an autograph book, personalize something, or if we have the Polaroid camera to take a picture, was there that feeling where you might compromise your journalistic integrity or was this a case that you're going out there because you are a fan of theirs and you make no bones about it? Well, you know, we were feature writers, right? So, um, you know, we didn't whitewash stories. And I think we reported them and accurately in both heyday and certainly when we originally started writing in college. But in answer to the question, we were fortunate in um, to bring a 35 millimeter camera with us after that first trip in 78, where Tom alludes to this cheap flashbulb fo- um, photo we got with a stare. But we took hundreds and hundreds of photos um, many of them in Hollywood heyday. And um, and as a, in certain circumstances, you know, with Burns, you know, one of their handler would say, hey, go, hey, boys, get in the photo. And we would take a photo with Burns or Charlton Heston. Um, and I regret the fact that um, I don't have as much memorabilia. Um, Tom and I both, you see in Tom's screen, we were both fortunate to have personally signed Singing in the Rain posters by Debbie Reynolds and Donald O'Connor and Gene Kelly and Sid Charisse. Um, I didn't, and Tom and I didn't go to Lucy and say, can you sign this photo for us? Um, so we do have some memorabilia, but you know, we don't have a Gregory Peck autograph. We don't have a lot of them. Um, so I would say it was a mixed bag. Yeah, it was never, it, 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 basically to, to respond to your point, Tony, it, we were going out there really to do these interviews and a lot of them we liked. You know, we were interviewing people that we, you know, had some interest in, but we never had, we were never in awe other than maybe with Gene and Fred, but we never came across that way. We didn't want to come across as some fawning, you know, uh, fanboy because that's just sort of not who we were. We were definitely fans and they knew that. And, um, but, and we did get a couple autographs from those two. But as Dave said, throughout most of those years, we, you know, we, we didn't go for the autographs or, you know, the pictures. I mean, we have very few. We, we, we were journalists and that's, we were there to get the story. And sometimes over the course of the interview, it went so well or whatever that they, you know, like Charlton Heston would say, come on out to my, you know, tennis court. I want to take a photo with you guys. And well, of course, we're not going to say no. So there were kind of instances like that, but the yeah, vast majority uh, it's Hollywood heyday of the 75. There's probably 60 candid shots of the celebrities um, that we took of that 60, maybe 10 of them. We have a photo of us with them. So we did take a lot of photos and most of them were audio taped, um, but we didn't uh, get in nearly as many. And uh, we don't have, you know, this huge collection of 250 photos and autographs either. It's kind of one of those misnomers that if you get a picture with the celebrity, it's not so much that you're, well, maybe for some people, but at least for me when I've met people, it's not so much to show people the clout and, hey, look who this is. What a great person I am because I met this A-list celebrity. It's more so that when you look years from now in an old photo album, you say, that was pretty cool. Like, or if you met a celebrity who had passed away, 
way or an actor or an athlete and you say that was pretty cool i got got a chance to meet them that was that was really yeah. nice and you're that close to greatness or what or a pop culture sensation and but i think part of it is marketing about, that's yeah. the great thing about hollywood heyday is that it it pretty much is in lieu of pictures with the star or autographs it's our testimony it's it's almost like a entertainment memoir the way it reads and so i mean if anyone ever wants to you know you don't have a picture with this person or with that person well yeah we met them and we wrote about them and here's the book so and as marketers i mean tom and i when we're not uh, doing celebrity stuff for 30 40 years we're doing a lot of pr marketing the fact of the matter is the fact that we have a photo of us with Burns or us with a stare or us with Shirley Jones or Heston or, you know, let's say there's eight of them that helped in the marketing of the book. So when the book comes out, you can send media outlets um, for feature stories, some of these photos as well. And final thing I wanted to ask you about, you guys, before I let you go, because you guys are probably busy today, but I saw the um, the Wisconsin Tourism Board and doing some of the uh, the old uh, airplane no, uh, it, it was it was I remember when that came out a couple of years ago and it went so viral and I'm like, oh, that's so genius. And then when I found out it, it I'm talking to those responsible here for it. I mean, how, how cool is that getting a chance that because airplanes now celebrating 40 years this year. We also have Cad, Caddyshack's 40 this year and uh, others like Raging Bull. There's a lot of great movies that came out in 1980. And what was it like kind of inserting yourself into being a part of that, especially I mean, for a lot of people, including myself, favorite comedy movie. Well, David Zucker and Jerry, his brother, and Jim Abrams all grew up where I am in the Milwaukee area. Mm -hmm. And when I worked for the Department of Tourism, um, the ad agency had this initial concept for a symphony orchestra and a snowball fight. And um, the idea came and said, well, maybe David would come back to Milwaukee, his hometown is sort of a favor and shoot this thing, which he did, and it became really successful. And then Jerry got into the act, and Jim got into the act, and we thought of, wow, why don't we do this like goofy flyover thing with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Robert Hayes? And we actually, the, the actual cockpit of the airplane still exists um, in the Los Angeles area at the studio that specializes in airplanes. And we, for one day, shot Kareem and Hayes with the three of those guys. And then we put in seasonal uh, uh, seasonal footage when they were doing the flyover. And it became sort of, uh, yeah, you're right. It was far more than just a Wisconsin-centric ad. These things went viral. And, um, you know, there was a lot of fun buzz around them. We had a news conference with Kareem and Hayes um, when we started shooting. And we got a lot of um, news media from the, the Los Angeles national market. So. Um, you know, David, uh, we still in touch with David and um, I, Bob Hayes and I were still in touch. Tom talks to him, too. Um, so they're, they're great guys. We got to know them well and become friends with them. And it was just fun seeing them all work and reunite like that. You know, David Zucker is a uh, Davy Crockett fanatic. He's an Alamo fanatic. You yeah. know? I didn't know that. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, he's like. He wanted to make a movie of that, right? Yeah, but but as a comedy director, they he could never get back. And no one would back him as a comedy director, Kentucky Fried Movie, to do something of the dramatic import of the Alamo. But he, um, if you look closely at anyone, and Dave will attest to this, any one of his films, you will see some Crockett outtake. There'll be a picture of Davy Crockett on a on you know Leslie Nielsen's wall. You just look, it'll be in passing. Oh, there's some guy in coonskin cap 
he ha- he always has some little like call out to Davy Crockett in almost any one of his films. It's like Seinfeld with Superman. Exactly, yeah. he's obsessed with Davy Crockett and the Alamo. Obsessed with it. Right? Yeah, yeah. The because uh, 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 coming up, I think maybe next week or the week after, I have Pat Proft coming on. Yeah, and, lives in the Twin Cities. Yeah, yeah. and Pat is uh, Pat's another guy that he was involved with the the ZAZ group. Where, yeah. uh, but then, uh, and and, I'm, and I'll tell him this, and I think he knows this that boy they stretch that concept really thin with <laughs> Naked Gun, and I mean, how many? Gosh, how many of those in the '90s they did with Leslie Nielsen? How many oh, uh, yeah. wrongfully accused, which was the fugitive uh, parody. hot shots and the sequel to that? You remember Hot Shots, which is pretty good. Part two, yeah. <laughs> And, you know, it's interesting because Tom and I were on the set of news radio. He's not in the book, but we had a wonderful visit with the great Phil Hartman. And Phil opined, and I think there's exceptions to this rule, but he said it's hard to be successful in comedy past the age of 50 because of audience tastes. And, I mean, when you look at, you know, Mel Brooks's output after he, he turned 50 and certain, I mean, there's certainly examples that bear that out and there are exceptions, but Rodney you know, Dangerfield is the exception. Yeah. And even, you know, Joan Rivers, you know, her shtick um, because of her being on E seemed to have legs with younger people as well. Yeah. Uh, it's uh boy, they, they, a lot of those, they, they stretch that concept, but it was, you know, the yeah. parody films were pretty, were, were, weren't their bad. Best are good. At their worst, they're unwatchable. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, one more time, uh, Hollywood Heyday it came out a couple of years ago, but you can still get it on Amazon. It's just a fa- it, it uh, when I when I booked this, I talked to you, David, about uh, getting this on. I ordered it right away, and of course, coming tomorrow. Oh, <laughs> so you can do a follow up anytime you want. Let us know what you think, and if you have specific, if you want to drill down on half a dozen of these others in there, let us know. Yeah, yeah what I, what I, here's what I'm going to do is uh, so I'm going to post this, and then afterward, I'm going to read the book, and then like. You know, down the down the road, I want I'm gonna, you know, if you don't mind, I'm going to take a pencil and start writing a couple of bookmarks down, and I want to ask you about certain uh, uh, individuals that like we didn't get to in this, but uh, you know, talking about Gene Kelly and talking about Fred Astaire, Milton Berle, and everything covered a, a lot of that. So, uh, and then of course there our segment on Bob Hope, but I, I really, really, really appreciate this, and uh, I'm, I'm I'm looking forward to posting this, getting the feedback, and. It is. Uh, it, it's good to go back in time. As much as we all want to look forward to 2021 and everything, and hope, hoping there's a vaccine and hoping the world is, I don't know, less insane. It's good to revisit the past, especially nowadays. I agree. Yeah. Tony, thank you for being a young guy and keeping the torch burning. Yeah, thanks. A we lot. Need more of you. Th- yep. th- thank you. I appreciate that. And I'll let you know. I'll let you know with the book. And uh, when I get done with it, I'm gonna. My, my whole family's gonna read it. So it's gonna be very dog-eared in the next couple of months. <laughs> Keep us posted. I will do so. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Okay. Take Bye care, Bye-bye. Thanks for the memory of sentimental verse. Nothing in my purse, and chuckles when the preacher said. For better or for worse, how lovely it was. Thanks for the memory.